always, always do a two-layer closure in cats. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use thick suture material. It can be very fine. It can be 4-0, 3-0, 4-0, even 5 um, for your for your intradermals, but if you want. But you, you, sh- you have to do two layers. Media presents the Per Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary professional healthcare team. If you are dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and author of multiple textbooks, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein. And this is Dr. Susan Little. Hey, Susan, how are you doing? I'm good, Yola. How are you? I am doing awesome. Uh, we are in Phoenix, Arizona right now. Where are you? Well, you're in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> I'm at home in very cold Ottawa. Winter Ooh. is arriving. Winter has come. No, not here. Pretty much. It's beautiful here. It's like 80-plus degrees, sunshine, oh. and it is wonderful. Rub it in. Rub it in. Yes, that's exactly it. So we have a very special guest today, Susan. Yeah, we sure do. I'm very excited. I am too. And we are here because of ACS, the uh, College of Veterinary Surgeon, the American College of Veterinary Surgeon, meeting in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, so I have invited an amazing surgeon, and she is going to introduce herself a little bit. And I am so excited that you're here. Right. Well, you should you should be excited because it's not often we actually have a surgeon on. So I, I can just surgeon. sense I can sense the thrills. I really can. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Susan, and thank you, uh, Yola. Uh, my name is Bryden Stanley. I'm uh, uh, head of surgery at Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine in the small animal department, and I. Uh, treat a lot of wounds and do a lot of uh, clinical research and wound management in both cats and dogs. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here to answer your questions and discuss wound healing in cats. And that's wonderful. And, and you know, she, and Susan, did you hear she said the D word? Which is totally not allowed in this podcast. So oh. every time she does that, she has to buy me a drink. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so and she likes go- expensive drinks too, Bryden. So be careful. <laughs> so it's going to be a good podcast already. Check, check, check. It'll be good know. for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but we're really excited that you're here, uh, Bryden. And uh, and 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 we decided to talk a little bit about cat wounds. And yeah. And I think this is really interesting because I always felt that cat wounds are the same as dog wounds until I started treating them. And there are some differences here and there are some things that are the same. So so before we go to the cat wound itself, uh, Brian, can you give a little bit of background how you reached 
the stage that you're in right now, the the amazing because you're an expert on on in the fields of wound healing. And so, can you give a little history, Katie? You mean in my career? Mm-hmm. Well, I am from Australia originally, and did my veterinary degree and an internship and a registrarship in Perth and in Sydney, and then I did my Residency in surgery in Canada at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Yay, Canada! <laughs> Yay, Canada, yes. And uh, then my first faculty appointment was in Edinburgh in Scotland. And after a few years there and in industry for a couple of years, I then we went to Cambridge. And then about 20 years ago now, we uh, came to Michigan State University and I've been there ever since, and I've always been interested in wounds, I think, because uh, when I was a resident, we used to see a lot of hunting injuries in uh, many species, and we got a lot of farming wounds as well as uh, car accident wounds, as well as some non-healing wounds and chronic infections, which cats are quite susceptible, actually, we can talk about that. Mm. And so when I started doing uh, research, I was naturally drawn to um, how we could improve our management of wounds in, in small animals, uh, in cats and other species. <laughs> oh, almost. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so we, since, ever since sort of my residency, really, I've been doing uh, various different studies uh, in, uh, to, to see if we can improve our outcomes with different types of wounds in in, uh, small animals. And cats, as you alluded to, Yara, cats are very different Mm -hmm. to dogs with, oops, that's two drinks. Yeah, two. Uh Uh-oh, there we go. He's keeping count too, you know. (laughs) As a comparator, I can use it. But so cats are very different for for several different reasons. They have very thin skin. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not as well perfused by blood so it's not, um, it doesn't have as good a blood supply as dogs do, and dogs have much thicker skin as well. And also their subcutaneous tissues are, are, are very important in the cat, and if there's any loss of those subcutaneous tissues or if they're repaired without paying attention to the, the tissue underneath the, the skin, then they can take a long time to heal. The other difference with, um, with cat skin is that it's very loose. So it's, as, as we all know, when we stroke our cats and, and, and play with them, they have this very loose attachment to the underlying uh, body wall or, or leg fascia. And so although when we close a wound in a cat, that tension might not be a big problem, motion is a huge problem uh, because the, the, the sheer forces that can be on those incisional edges can be quite significant just because of the mobility of the skin. So, um, it, in in a way, if you were going to compare it to that to the D species, um, <laughs> greyhounds would be uh, in, a, in a similar boat. They also have very thin skin as well. But cats are absolutely um, um, you have to pay a lot more attention when you are treating a cat's wound and also closing a wound in a cat, whether it's a surgical wound or whether it's a traumatic wound, or whether it's an abscess, or uh, or whatever. So, however, 
mentioned that when it comes to big cats, like lions and tigers... Mm-hmm. Oh, my, oh, my. I've got quite a bit of surgery <laughs> on at zoos. They heal fantastically. So it would be really nice to see why they heal so well um, compared to, say, our, our cats, our domesticated cats. Well, that's cool. Susan? I, I find that very interesting, actually, that, that um, the, the big cats heal, heal differently. Now, they're all cats, but they're not the same species, of course. So, you know, maybe maybe there are enough uh, differences between the uh, the various uh, big cat species that, uh, you know, we can't transfer to to, to the domestic cat. Um, I, I find that pretty interesting. I have think that's pretty interesting to me. The other thing that's quite interesting in cats is that, well, first of all, I don't want to make it sound like cats are disastrous as far as <laughs> a challenge to wound healing because they aren't. I mean, they, they, as long as you pay attention to these, you know, these issues, you can have them healing absolutely perfectly. So they, it's not a huge challenge. It's just something to be aware of at all times. But they are prone to getting atypical infections as well. For example, mycobacterial infections or, or actinomycotic infections, but specifically mycobacterial infections. And because the, these bacteria the, t- like to live in the fat and, um, you know, a lot of cats will have these sort of this inguinal fat pad and they can hang out in there and can cause quite a lot of uh, mischief as far as causing very chronic wounds that are difficult to manage. And I think that's that's an excellent point because if I remember my worst cases, often there were cats, and they were worse because they have these indolent wounds that don't want to go anywhere. And whatever you do with them, they just stay the same. And Mm. it is so chronic and so frustrating. Mm. So, uh, So cats for me are always, if they heal, I'm always pinching myself from happiness. But if they don't heal, I always start really, really be, being worried. Yes, the, the indolent wounds are actually very interesting um, in cats. And this is when, instead of getting a nice, normal bed of granulation tissue that's bright red and then starts contracting down, uh, you, it, you get granulation tissue, but it becomes paler and paler and more fibrous and the collagen gets laid down and it fails to contract. And in fact, it can form quite a smooth lined pocket uh, that is, is, you've got to kick start it back into the inflammatory phase to get it to heal again. And I think that's also related to this poor perfusion mm-hmm. and poor um, subcutaneous layer. So you really do have to try and avoid that by closing that dead space down very much in cats, either by a bandage or with sutures or with a drain, you know, obliterate, one of Halstead's principles, you know, obliterate mm-hmm. dead space. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to avoid uh, indolent ulcers in cats and, and especially old cats because, you know, they, then you've got sort of, you know, two things. You've got their, you know, their poor subcutaneous and their age acting against them. So, uh, mm. yeah, the indolent ulcers are... They are a pain, for sure. Mm. Susan? Mm. So you know what you're you're making me think of some of the the difficult wound healing cases that um, that I've had with cats and I I had a series of cats I've had a series over the years that I actually 
do a lecture on now, and that's cats with streptococcal infections. So they uh, almost get a type of necrotizing fasciitis. They, those, and those infections spread very rapidly. What you see on the surface of them is very deceiving because there's a lot more uh, damage, you know, uh, and a lot uh, more extensive um, infection uh, subcutaneously than what you might see um, in, in the skin. So uh, I've learned to be uh, very um, careful when I see wounds that are kind of unexplained or they don't look like I think they should, anything that's a bit of a red flag. Because, yeah, it may be an atypical infection. You mentioned mycobacteria. Uh, it also could be uh, something that we don't think of that often, and that's some of these streptococcal infections. So uh, I think it's important for vets to know that cats can get, and dogs too, can get uh, things like uh, uh, almost a necrotizing fasciitis-type um, uh, scenario. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you've seen cases like that too. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I've got so many photos of these necrotizing either fasciitis or necrotizing vasculitides, I call them, mm. because they're actually, um, they, luckily they don't seem to go too much, not all, at least usually, not typically, all the way through the body wall. And and sometimes mm. they're like this group G strep, like you say. Sometimes we don't yeah. culture anything. So sometimes I even think they could be immune mediated. But they are something that we get, uh, we actually treat pretty aggressively once we've recognize it. So what we do is if we see an animal, and it can be a dog or a cat, but even evenly spread between the two species, is and, and there isn't any discoloration but it hasn't declared itself yet, we will get a permanent marker. We shave up extensively, because sometimes they can have several lesions. We shave up extensively, and we get a permanent marker, and we actually mark the declared area and then the suspicious area. So the declared area is a solid line, and the suspicious area is a dotted line. And then every six hours, we look at it again. And then we make, within 12 hours, we make a decision about where to uh, do our resection. Because we, we, we don't let them wait, but we want to make sure that we've, uh, make sure that we've got it fully declared. But they, yeah, we actually do resections on those, and then we uh, do treat them with negative pressure wound therapy uh, for three days. So how did, how's that going in cats? So negative pressure wound therapy goes very well in cats as long as you don't use the intermittent mode. Mm. Because with the intermittent mode, every time it starts up, they either flinch or they go meow. <laughs> so they don't like it when it starts up again. The intermittent mode is you know, five minutes on, two minutes off. So we use it in continuous mode. Mm. And they, they, they're fine with it. I mean, you have to always defat the skin and make sure you get a good view on that. Yeah, so just to explain a little bit, negative pressure, it's kind of a newer technique that has been getting more in favor the last 10 years, five to 10 years, where you use negative pressure to, as a matter of fact, cover the wound. There is a machine that you have to test, it sucks the air out, and you create a wound where... As a matter of fact, for wound healing, it's an ideal environment. And uh, so used to be used in dogs a lot. Um, I've used it in cats a little bit, I have to say. Uh, um, I know that cats don't like wraps and being wrapped, and, and so that makes it always a little bit more difficult. But I think your tip off, and I did notice that if you don't have it on continuous, the cats are scared all the time. I mean, they are flinching if, if they're not vocalizing. Mm. So that's a good point. Mm. 
you know, and you, we only use the negative pressure wound therapy for cats that have got significant wounds, mm -hmm. and we, they're usually on uh, some sort of constant rate infusion of analgesic, so we, we keep them pretty sedated. Mellow that. And, and so let's go back to the basics. So what, what is your, before the wound, obviously you have trauma that is associated with it, and cat abscess are probably the number one trauma that we see in cats. What is your favorite therapy for cat abscess? Well, it's funny you should ask that, Yala, because I cannot remember the last time I've treated a cat abscess. Oh, you are kidding. <laughs> they, are, they are treated by the by the primary veterinarian and the um and or our primary care service and the and the, and the uh, emergency critical care service. But if I do get to see it, um, you know these are these are one thing that cats do actually pretty well with it. Mm -hmm. The ultimate in wound management is to uh, dip and cleanse around the wound, so the abscess. Uh, drainage is absolutely, you know, because you don't want to inoculate the wound with the animal's own organism, so we use aseptic technique. Drainage is absolutely critical. You've got to drain it mm -hmm. and provide drainage, so either by leaving it open uh, or by closing it with a drain. And then, uh, but before that, and then lavaging or ir you know, copious irrigation with um, either a lactated ringers or a uh, uh, antiseptic solution. And, and, and my opinion on this is most of the time with these abscesses, I don't use any antibiotics, although that's where a lot of people will immediately be drawn to say, oh, we have to put them on antibiotics. But if you release the pressure, so if you release yeah. uh -huh. and drain it and then flush it out really well, you really don't need antibiotics. You know, you can't screw up an open wound. Mm. You know, if, you mm -hmm. drain, if you've got drainage from that wound, the only time I would put a cat or you know, any animal really on antibiotics is if I have significant CBC changes mm. where I have got an inflammatory leukogram or, of course, if I've cultured something. Mm. So, uh, and, and with, uh, with a first time cat abscess, you tend not to culture because they work so well with, with drainage and flushing. Yeah. The, uh, the, the other time would be if I thought that I could not get to all of the affected area. So with cat bite abscesses, usually you can. But if, for example, there was a bite that went deep into the perineal area or the ischia rectal fossa or something like that, then I would uh, probably continue for a five-day course of a broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I don't continue it for longer than that okay. because, you know, once you get a multidrug-resistant infection, it, they're much more difficult to nurse because they have to be completely barrier-nursed and isolated. And... Uh, and then it can be very difficult to treat as well. So mm. I, I would worry when you have a multi-drug resistant infection because I feel the animal is a, um, you can't you can't observe the animal as, as closely as you would otherwise. Mm. So. That's a good point, mm. Susan. Mm. I think that that's really interesting discussion because you know I suspect most veterinarians do put cat bite abscess patients on on antibiotics and. Uh, I, it is, I think, really worth reevaluating that very traditional approach, especially in this era where we are trying to have better antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, and and it, it may may indeed be that that's one of the areas where we don't always have to have um, antibiotics. I suspect, though, that most practicing veterinarians, you know, in sort of first opinion practices, are going to be doing that. So, so my question to you is, you you mentioned that. 
we may not need antibiotics if, as long as, you know, the wound can be made, can be opened to some degree and, and flushed. So is that, in your mind, will that be partly dependent on how much home care the owner could do for that, for that abscess? We, we'll typically put a drain in, send the cat home for a few days, have the owner do some wound care. But, you know, many owners can't manage that very well. No, I think, well, it depends on how bad the abscess is, but usually mm. by the time we'll, we'll discharge um, a cat, and that could be any time from the day of surgery to two or three days later, at that stage mm-hmm. there's, there's very minimal. Uh, we don't expect the owners to uh, to do a lot of wound care for a cat bite abscess. But that, what you're mentioning is really interesting because cat bite abscesses are so common, it would be a fantastic study Mm-hmm. You know, to get it and do it as a multi-site or an in-practice study, where practitioners all participate and the cats are randomised to either receive antibiotics or not receive antibiotics, and then we define some outcome measures and see um, see what differences we, we. Hey, I'm up for that. I think that would be a great study. Count I know, in. and it and, and needs to be sponsored by the AAFP or something like that. <laughs> you know? Get get all the cat steps together and do that study. It, it yeah, should be relatively easy. Right. Yeah. <coughs> easy. It would be an easy study design. Yeah, I mean, it's it, online now. that's exactly it. It's uh, now very interesting. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that you have to look at the patient too because what I noticed is so if you treat an abscess, so the cat of, often, comes, often comes in sick, high temperature, not feeling well, don't want to eat, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you look for the abscess, you find the abscess, you drain it, and then it's amazing how fast those cats recover. And that, for mm-hmm. me, always a sign, you, should I use antibiotics or not? So I only use antibiotics in cats where I see that there is not that super quick recovery. Um, and, of course, I evaluate the amount of drainage that comes out of the abscess and, and how the cat is feeling. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So going back to the wound part then, so if you have an open wound, there's lots of opportunities that we have to close wounds. And I think, you know, although cats might be having a disadvantage because they have thin skin, they are also awesome in doing wound reconstructions because you have so much space and flexibility and, and, and we can talk for hours about this, but don't you agree, right, that this is, you know, Cats are just a dream to do skin flaps on. They've got mm. lots of um, uh, flank fold and elbow fold skin that you can use. The and and so they're absolute. You can manipulate their skin very viscoelastic, and as I mentioned before, it's loosely attached to the underlying fascia, so you can lift it up and and uh, and put it just about anywhere. The um, the things you have to pay attention to when you're doing skin flaps uh, is to uh, or any uh, any sort of skin closure is to make sure that you, when you develop the skin flap, you bring the subcutaneous tissue with the flap. You leave as much mm-hmm. subcutaneous tissue with the flap as you can because that blood supply to the skin is critical. It has to come through that subcutaneous fat layer in cats. And uh, and then when you're doing your closure, you should always, always do a two-layer closure in cats. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use Thick suture material can be very fine. It can be 4-0, 3-0, even 5 um, for your for your intradermals, but if you want. But you you, sh- you have to do two layers, and then um, uh, and then if it's a, if it's a chronic wound and it's predisposed to getting an indolent 
uh, also like it's already got this chronic granulation tissue, pale fibrous granulation tissue, then you need some way of making sure you can get that uh, that skin layer adherent down to the body wall, either with bandaging or a drain or suturing. And then what I will do if it's in a mobile area um, or if it's an elderly cat or if I'm at all concerned about the closure, I will augment that closure with bolster sutures or some stent sutures, something that will just take the tension off that primary suture line, the subcutaneous and the skin. And those sutures only stay in for three days, but that's mm. enough for the skin to adapt to the uh, stresses and strains that have been placed upon it. Great. Susan? Mm. Mm. Oh, I, I think that's really interesting. It's a, <laughs> Even though I'm an internal medicine um, person, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, wounds are common, as, as you say, in in, uh, in, in cats for, for various reasons, whether it's the abscess or they've um, had uh, uh, a car accident or, you know, whatever it is. So we're, we're all having to deal with wound care. Um, and cat skin, um, uh, as you say, is, is a bit of our, a bit of our enemy and that uh, those suture lines can break down so easily. So, I think it's really important for veterinarians to know that there are some, um, not, you know, not fancy techniques, like you mentioned, using some of these uh, techniques like uh, like stent sutures um, uh, that can take the tension off off of off of an incision and, and really make a difference to whether that holds together or whether it breaks down. So, um, could, so I'd be interested to hear you just talk a little bit more about some of those just really common. They're practical. They're easy for veterinarians in practice to do. So when, when you're using stents, for example, just tell, tell me a little bit more about how you do those, like what, what material do you use for your actual stent? Okay, so for um, I tend to use stent sutures in mobile areas, like in the flank or behind the elbow or behind the shoulder or something like that. And if there's any tension on the closure because there's been a, a large loss of skin either with a burn or with um, a necrotizing fasciitis that like we were talking right. about, then I tend to use um, a, a bolster, and, the, and I actually love bolsters, so I'll, I'll talk about those first. The way I put in a bolster is um, I'm all ready to close my wound, and before I do my two-layer closure, what I do is I pre-place um, some large-gauge suture. So for a cat, it would probably be 2 or even 0 mm -hmm. suture, uh, quite a way, maybe about 3 centimeters from the wound edge. Uh, and I pass just these big, simple interrupted sutures going three centimeters away from the wound edge, sort of into the wound, quite deep, and then coming out the other side. And I just leave them there, and I'll place them about three centimeters apart, all the way along that, mm -hmm. that wound. So they could be three, they could be six, they could be eight. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I just leave them. And then I go ahead and do my two-layer closure. And so I've got my wound closed, and I've got these big, sutures hanging out either side of my incised uh, or my closed incision. And then I place an adaptic or some sort of non-adherent uh, uh, semi-occlusive dressing on top of the, to protect the suture line. And then I set some sterile cling or some sort of cast padding, something that's very soft and I, if, it's, if it's a little hard then I'll unroll it and roll it up again, aseptically, still maintaining aseptic technique. And then I just place those on top of on top of, the, of those few rolls, one or two rolls, on top of the incision, on top of that uh, dressing. And then I tie those simple interrupted sutures. And I don't tie them down really tightly. I tie them just so they're snug. 
and uh, and tie them all the way up across the wound using as many bandage rolls as I need. I've got lots of photos of these that I think mm-hmm. want to put them on the podcast. Oh, just a good uh, idea. Yeah, we, yeah, we could add a photo or two to the yeah. uh, podcast website. That'd be very cool. So so yeah. you're use, you're tying it around that, that bandaging material, essentially, right. to take the tension off. Right, take the tension off your primary suture line. And then after three days, you can take them out. Okay, and they and they and then by then the the the, the skin has undergone what we call stress relaxation, where it is adapted to that applied strain that's been placed on it by the closure. Um, so that's the bolster sutures. So the stent sutures, which I will use if it's over a joint or in a, in a very mobile area like the flank or uh, an area where there's going to be a lot of shear on the actual incision, uh, incisional edges. I uh, you can you can pre-place these before, or you can put them in after you've done your closure. But I tend to do them before. And what you're doing is a vertical mattress suture. Again, you're just putting in a few, quite coming in and going out quite away from the wound edge, uh, two centimeters or so. And then, uh, and again, you're putting them about three centimeters apart, all the way along the incision, and you. Cushion it with, I tend to use the Penrose drain, one or two Penrose drains, mm-hmm. uh, just underneath that vertical mattress suture. And it almost uh, everts the wound's edges a little bit, but I don't do them so tight that it actually everts them fully because it just sort of wrinkles up. So I just, um, I just, I just put it so you can see there's no tension on that, on that um, edge that's going to be sutured closed if it hasn't been already. Then you do your two-layer closure. Always do your two-layer closure, and then uh, and then you and then you've just got a two-layer closure which doesn't have a lot of uh, tension or and it's fairly immobilized by these stent sutures as well. And again, you take those out at about three to four days. I think that, that those are really good tips. Yeah. The problem with the two-layer closure for a lot of veterinarians is that the subcutaneous are sometimes is so thin. So yeah, yeah so pretend story is so thin mm-hmm. that you know they struggle with getting that deep work closure. In. That that's true. And when I'm teaching, um, you know, that often they'll say that there's nothing there's nothing to grab, uh, but there is. Mm-hmm. There's always something to grab. I and mean, use a finer suture, even mm-hmm. if you're using fluoro. If you can spread that that um, that motion and that tension over two layers even if they're finer layers, then that'll be better than just doing one layer. Mm. And you can be, the subcutaneous layer can be an interrupted layer, you know. You could just do a few here and there. You know, they could be one centimeter, two centimeters apart. I tend to do continuous, but um, but you don't have to. Sometimes I'll do interrupted. Yeah, so that's, that's another question. So for your skin suture, so in your skin, uh, what suture material do you use and what pattern? Are you mean an intradermal or for... No, 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 just skin? for the actual skin. So um, I don't like stable, but that's probably more of a personal thing. I just don't think our skin staples are particularly good. I don't think they especially hold. yeah they don't think they hold very well. They distort, or when they're deployed, they will often twist and distort. And of course, they can vary easily with that cat tongue if it gets to be um, licked out. Mm. And so I tend to use uh, very simple sutures. I'll, I, I won't use simple interrupted that much, but I'll use. Um, I'll use cruciate sutures, mm-hmm. 
I will use, um, I, I have used forward interlocking in, in, in some very long incisions, uh, but then I did have a cat that got a claw hooked on us oh. and it zipped up the whole line. But, well, uh, no. so, uh, the, 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 uh, so I, I, I will probably do something like cruciate sutures. Now, one thing to remember is if you are suturing with skin sutures, somewhere where a cat, when it's, um, when it's sitting down, is rubbing one part of its skin on the other, so in other words, in a flank area, like the inside of the thigh, or in the flank, or just behind the shoulder, so that when a cat's crouching, the, the elbow or the brachium is, is rubbing against that, they will get almost a kissing lesion from the sutures that will irritate uh-huh. the, the skin. So you, I tend to do, in those areas, intradermal sutures. And for intradermal sutures, I'll use 4 um, monocryl or uh, uh, some sort of short-absorbing yeah, suture. material. Uh, that, uh, with a cutting needle. Mm-hmm. I always use a cutting needle when I'm doing intradermal sutures. I like JB needles. Uh, I know they're they're from Epicon, but those are. Mm. It, it's not really a cutting needle, but they're really sharp. So mm. I love yeah. those needles for intradermal. So, it's all but, about being sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like us. <laughs> so, so we're almost at that thirty-minute uh, break point uh, where we have to stop. I have one more question for you, and then we'll have Susan have one more question. Um, so, what is your ideal management of a Cat wound that is not ready yet to be closed primarily. So the management of an open wound that is not ready to be closed in a cat depends on whether it's in the inflammatory phase of wound healing or whether it's in the proliferative phase of wound healing because they're very different. In the inflammatory phase, it's going to be more exudative and you're going to need a much more absorbent dressing and you want that dressing to be breathable. You should never put an occlusive dressing uh, on a cat wound in in the inflammatory phase. If it's in the proliferative phase, which means it's got just the beginning of granulation tissue in there, then that's when you actually do want to put a little bit of an occlusive dressing on it because it, in cats especially, they can dry out and desiccation, as well as maceration, but desiccation can really slow down wound healing. So uh, in the early phases of a wound, uh, if I don't use negative pressure wound therapy, um, I like to use uh, calcium alginate. If it's a contaminated wound, and so I always do lavage of the wound, extensive mm-hmm. lavage, and they breathe more if um, if there's necrotic tissue and debris in the wound. And then, uh, and usually a five or ten minute uh, lavage session of a using a, a buffered saline like lactate agreement, typically. And then I'll put an absorbent dressing on it if it's in the inflammatory phase, and that would be. Um, Either, if I don't have negative pressure wound therapy, it would be a damp to dry dressing for 24 hours. But because cats really don't tolerate uh, those being removed very well without being anesthetized, then I, I will more commonly use something like calcium alginate because it's a highly absorbent dressing and it can stay in for three days and you can just wash it out with uh, lavage from your cat. And, um, you can get now calcium alginate with honey impregnated in it, which is a very nice antibacterial um, modality, or with uh, silver impregnated into it as well. So there's lots of different types of they've, uh, calcium alginate that you can use. It's derived from the brown kelp, and it's a very comfortable dressing for cats. And it's interesting because both silver and um, honey have kind of antibiotic 
But, Very uh, much so. Yeah, Maluka so. honey especially and uh, and silver. Though you must only very put a very thin layer of silver um, on the wound because uh, it can impede epithelialization. Hmm. So uh, more is not better when it comes to silver. <laughs> Great. Susan, do you have a last question? Yeah, no, just a, just a last comment because now you're also in another very interesting area to me and I, I will... I will tell you that over the over the years, a few times I've managed some of these wounds that aren't ready to close or maybe not so easy to close with with honey um, or with uh, with sugar solutions. And uh, uh, I, you know, I I, I saw that uh, done with uh, a, 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 the other species, the lesser species, uh, in school <laughs> in a particular patient with a, a large non-healing wound and it kind of stuck in my head and I, you know, kind of pulled it out of my repertoire a few things, a few times over my career and, and have been each time, you know, pleasantly surprised sometimes at how well that, that works. It, it seems too low tech, doesn't it? But, uh, but quite, quite a useful thing to keep in the back of your mind. Yes. I think um, we've done some studies with honey, uh, not in cats, but in the lesser species. And <laughs> we had, um, the, the one I'm thinking of we haven't published yet, but I can tell you that uh, the, the Manuka honey has been recently marketed to promote wound healing independent mm-hmm. of its antibacterial properties, which are well established. And we didn't find an advantage to wound healing. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, there's a strong advantage with its antibacterial properties. They are proven conclusively, and there's no doubt about that. But there, there's no magic sort of um, improvement right. in wound healing that we could detect. Anyhow, right. uh, but but certainly, you know, I'd rather have an animal with uh, topical honey medication than being on antibiotics for 30 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah, sure. And the other thing yeah. is patience, you know, with, with, um, with, you know, don't try and close the wound too early if it's mm. highly exudated. You know, wait until. Yeah, timing is everything. Great. Last question, what's really hot lately is uh, tilapia skin. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Tell us about that. I've never used tilapia skin, but it is next on my list to wow. do a study on. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things. I want to do a study on tilapia and also on amnion, equine amnion. Mm-hmm. So wow. I did a pilot study a few summers ago, and it was uh, Swain, Dr. Swain, mm-hmm. years and years ago, and uh, did a little study, and it was very promising and sort of fallen off the, off the book because of all the... Uh, uh, you know, uh, manufactured products, but uh, it, I, I think it would be. A, it appears to be worked very well in the pilot study that we used when we used it, and you know, it comes with a whole lot of growth factors and stem cells, and it's sort of the, uh, it has immune privilege, so there's no sort of reaction to it. It's, uh, so tilapia and amniotic. Yeah. So, so the only thing that I always wonder about is the antimicrobial aspect of both of them. So you, for the tilapia, right. you obviously need to sterilize them in a way, right. but you can't just slap on tilapia skin because you will introduce all the bacteria that are floating around in and wherever they are getting mm. slaughtered. Mm. And with the amnion, too, you have to be very careful. So there's a protocol of preparation that mm-hmm. we had. I mean, first of all, it has to be a delivery with, um, with no complications. Mm-hmm. The amnion has to be immediately collected, so I had a group of students that would be out there in the middle of the night <laughs> getting this amnion like you. before it hit the ground. <laughs> no, I was sleeping soundly. <laughs> and, uh, and then we had a, a process which took about five or six hours of repeated spraying and lavage and, um, 
and then uh, freezing, then then layering and then freezing. Wow. Yeah. So it, so it wasn't sterile, mm-hmm. but it was um, it was prepped according to a published protocol. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think this is fantastic. So thank you so much, Bri, for being with us uh, and and entertaining us. Uh, we 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 got the idea to do this like two days ago. So. And thank you, Susan, for being on. Uh, this has been great. Um, oh, yeah. I've learned some things, which is always great. Thank you. That, that's exactly it. So we learn every day here. So, But yep. uh, thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and re- remember, I'm up for that study. I'm up for that abscess study. Count me in. Oh, good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then... Uh, <laughs> And then uh, we, uh, I wish you lots of success uh, here in Phoenix because you still have to have a lot of lectures. Hi. And, uh, and she's an awesome lecturer. <laughs> Funny and awesome. So thank you so much. And we'll thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Hello, this is Dr. Yellow. Chris is saying thank you for listening to our podcast. Please note that all opinions given here are purely Dr. Susan and my interpretation. Veterinary medicine is a beautiful but complicated profession as no animal or case is exactly the same. Well, there's one thing for sure. Yeah. Yola and I have strong opinions and we're not afraid to say them. So that's a good thing though, isn't it? Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August's Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX.